The Virtual CMO Podcast is sponsored by the Strategic Marketing Advisory Services of the Five Echelon Group. If you'd like to work directly with the Five Echelon Group and discuss how fractional CMO services can help optimize your business, enhance marketing effectiveness, and grow revenue, visit fiveechelon.com. That's F-I-V-E-E-C-H-E-L-O-N.com to learn more and schedule a free consultation. Welcome to the Virtual CMO Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Dickman. In this podcast, we have conversations with marketing professionals who share the strategies, tactics, and mindset you can use to improve the effectiveness of your marketing activities and grow your business. This week, I'm excited to welcome Anastasia Lang to the podcast. Anastasia is the founder and CEO of CreativeX, formerly known as Picasso Labs. CreativeX is an automated creative excellence platform that aims to advance creative expression through the clarity of data. Their technology is used globally by Fortune 500 brands like Unilever, Nestle, Heineken, and even Facebook to measure creative efficiency, consistency, and impact across all their image and video content worldwide. Anastasia graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a triple major in psychology, sociology, and French. She has been a nomad all her life and has lived in Bahrain, Vietnam, Hungary, Russia, France, England, and the U.S. Today, we're going to talk about implementing AI in your creatives to impact your audience and prospects. Please help me welcome Anastasia to the program. Anastasia, welcome to the Virtual CMO Podcast. I'm so glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited that you're here as well. When I do this show, I get requests all the time from people who are web developers or SEO experts or content creators. And so we cover a lot of familiar territory just looking at it from different angles. But we're going to be talking today about the power of AI, and I think the power of AI being used in a very different way than I think any guests have talked about before. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this discussion and hearing your insights on on this great new world of technology that we have at our fingertips. As we kick things off, could you just share a little background with the audience? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I started my career as a marketer. I went to I went to Google shortly after graduating from university, and I you know I didn't know what marketing was at that time. Uh, at Google, you just kind of got thrown into the deep end, and that was it. So I, I learned marketing through experience and not through education. Uh, and then after about six years at Google, it felt like the right time for me to leave and start my own company. So I started a company in the e-commerce space. Okay. That company did not work out. Uh, it was a it was a failed startup by all accounts. But actually, as we were building that company, we were having a lot of marketing challenges. And through the process of trying to solve those challenges, we ended up building technology for marketers uh, and ended up essentially pivoting our company's focus to help marketers with some of the challenges they were seeing in a new landscape, which relied predominantly on visual communication. And so... A lot of it was right place, right time. A lot of my journey has also been about uh, sort of the uh, inability to admit that something was failing and to keep persevering. And that's sort of what led to the creation of the company I run today, which is called CreativeX. I think what's so interesting is that we are in a time of just unbelievable content creation, right? Everybody who's got a phone in their pocket is a content creator, and they have the ability to do it at a price point that is, is practically free for a lot of them. And yet 
there's so much bad content out there too. And I think there's been a big adjustment for marketers because in the past content in the marketing realm was white papers and presentation decks and brochures and a lot of this very static content. And now in some ways, marketing is catching up to what individuals are doing in their own personal lives in terms of content creation. Just from your perspective, how do you look at the landscape in terms of just what's being created out there? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's changing every day. And I think the the rise of different consumer platforms dictates the kind of content that we create. So when you looked at, at marketing content, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of it was really focused on content that had a very long shelf life. It was, you know, a couple of television ads, a couple of radio ads, print advertising, et cetera. Obviously, with the explosion of the internet, you saw a huge explosion in website as content and therefore sort of online written content, obviously SEO, SEM, search ads, et cetera. And then came the rise of the visual platforms and the social networks, which drove a mass influx of visual content, but also content with a much shorter shelf life, right? Uh, and such a need to create content that marketers just couldn't keep up. I think what we're seeing, and, and a lot of this is obviously interpreted through our lens, where we focus predominantly on, on visual content, is even things that used to be done through long uh, white papers are now being forced to be done through infographics. Essentially, the content is shortening in most cases, right? Because uh, the perception is consumers have a much shorter attention span than they did before because they're bombarded with so many things. So they make a very, very quick decision in most cases in three seconds as to whether or not your content is something they actually want to pay attention to. The second thing that we're seeing is a big influx and a big shift from static content to dynamic content, right? So when we started the company uh, maybe five years ago, most of the visual content we were analyzing was static imagery. Today, that's video. So I think, again, especially in the time of COVID, there is a desire for more dynamic, interactive, engagement, engaging content, and that video is the perfect platform for that. But it's hugely challenging too, right? I think in the past, you know, if we go back to that 10, 15 years ago when marketing teams were creating a static piece of collateral, a brochure, a white paper, something like that, maybe the different forms it had to take were language translations uh, mm -hmm. if you had different markets. Now you've got Facebook, which has one set of rules and Instagram, which has a set of rules and LinkedIn. So you can have very similar content, but it has to be customized for all of these different platforms and the engagement models of those platforms. Do you see that as a real challenge for brands or do you think the tools are robust enough to make that easy? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, you've been a marketer for a long time. Right. And, and I don't know what you think about this, but my view is it's never been more difficult to be a marketer than it is today, because the sheer amount of information, the sheer amount of things you have to remember and do and perfect and learn is frankly overwhelming. You've mentioned a couple of them, which is, let's say you are a, a marketer who's investing in social media and you say, OK, great, uh, I'm going to invest in, let's say, Facebook. Uh, YouTube and Twitter. Well, all three of them are completely different platforms yeah. with completely different rules of engagement and completely different best practices. Before, what we used to do is, you know, we might, especially sort of at the beginning of, let's say, YouTube, um, it was common to take a television ad and run it on YouTube. And we learned very quickly that, you know, that, that just doesn't work. Um, I think with digital, we haven't quite learned that lesson to the full extent where we're still taking content, then applying the same content across multiple platforms, and it just doesn't work. 
But the reality is it's also very difficult for people to remember and maintain a, a constantly evolving body of knowledge about what they have to tweak to perfect their content for these platforms. And there are very few tools that help with this. There's a lot of knowledge, but I think the challenge, and this is where technology comes in, is how do you apply that knowledge at scale, right? And how do you fresh that knowledge in, in real time? And that's a problem that we're hoping that technology can, can solve. You're so right. There are tools out there that allow you to post across multiple platforms, but many of them sort of go to the lowest common denominator, right? They're not necessarily taking advantage of what each platform can offer. And each platform is always changing. I saw something the other day where Twitter is now looking to expand the size of the photos that they put in the feed. It's just constantly evolving. And the same holds true with things like tagging companies and tagging names. Sometimes the platforms allow third-party products to do that. Other times there are some real limitations around that. And so it is increasingly hard. But I, I agree with your statement that I think it's never been more challenging to be a marketer. At the same time, I think these tools are so accessible that many companies feel that it's easy. And because of that, a lot of money gets wasted. <laughs> well, I think hopefully what technology has shown is that um, not only can it help you save time and money, but it can hopefully get you back to doing the things that you enjoy doing rather than doing sometimes those monotonous tasks, having to figure out, Hey, how do I take this piece of content that I think is really great and just get it ready to be successful on this other platform. Right. And I think those are things where technology can really help. So we free up people's time to focus on the big ideas. So as we've sort of moved, you know, as we were talking about 10 to 15 years ago to where we are today, it used to be the words were the most important thing, right? The words mattered. That's what people would see first, the headline, whatnot. Now it's the imagery. It's that video content. It's that picture. And that's really where your company comes into play, right? We've had so many tools out there that help us pick the best words, which headline wins this one versus that one, which copy wins this one versus that one. But the imagery has been something of a mystery, right? You kind of pick what, what your gut feel says might be the kind of imagery that you want to use, but now you're really able to apply some science and some technology to that to help people determine what creative wins. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on there. What's happening behind the scenes that allows that to work? Yeah, well, so you're absolutely right in terms of creative is now incredibly important. And I think to some extent it always was. I think it's become more important, which is why we're paying attention. So currently, uh, research shows that creative uh, can be attributed to uh, about 56% of the impact towards sales lift. So when you look at all the other things we spend our time optimizing, you know, the place where the ad is running, the audience it's targeting, you know, the time of day, et cetera, all of these things pale in comparison to the importance of the creative. Facebook also recently uh, released some research where they showed um, through eye tracking studies, where does your attention go when you see an ad, right? And Facebook has sort of a um, multifaceted sort of ad container, right? You've got Mm -hmm. the creative in the middle, whether it's an image or a video, you've got copy at the top, you've got the logo, you've got, you know, the comments and the likes, et cetera. And what they found is the majority of attention first goes to the actual image and video, then next it goes to the copy. Finally, the last thing is the logo. And then lastly, the, the comment. So it, you know, it is what people are paying attention to in terms of, uh, in terms of how do we actually learn from all the things that we're doing? Well, this is where, this is where the power of technology comes in. I think what technology now allows us to do is to take any creative and really break it down to the sum of its parts to some extent, right? Okay. So if you think about, uh, looking at a creative, 
we can start to understand that scale. What are all the visual elements contained in that creative? So if someone were to take a picture of the screen right now, they would, you know, we would be able to identify, oh, there's a man and a woman in this creative and they're wearing glasses and they have a microphone and, you know, it looks like they're indoors and things like that. And that data in and of itself may not seem particularly useful, right? I think there's a big trend of, um, of almost using too much data in marketing where sometimes you can't really see the forest for the trees. But when you think about applying that data and using that data across every image review you have and figuring out how do you use that data to create ads that are more consistent, to create ads that are more likely to succeed, then that becomes really valuable data that can help you inform your creative execution, your creative roadmap. So you talked about Facebook studies where, you know, they actually tracked eye movements, where people are going. When your software gets in there and starts to evaluate that, is it using similar kinds of technology? Is it using different samples to say we're going to run different kinds of ads using different kinds of imagery and uh, one is going to win, one is obviously going to be more popular? What's the mechanics of what's happening behind the scenes? Yeah, so I think here's, it's important to take a step back and um, sort of talk a little bit about uh, the, the challenge that we're trying to help our marketers solve. Yeah. Um, and really that challenge is, you know, we think, uh, we think technology is never going to replace creativity, mm-hmm. nor is that sort of the business we're in. We're not going to tell you to, you know, put a dog in the ad or, or put a baby in the ad because that gets more clicks. We think fundamentally that's not how creativity works and, and, you know, sort of thank goodness for that, right? What we're thinking about is uh, what is the container, the most sort of successful container that your ad can go in to help you get the attention and, and capture the consumer's attention when you have that, you know, sort of split second opportunity to grab them. And so ultimately, a lot of the, the brands we work with, their their goal is to become better brands. Their goal is to create better content, more consistent content, more diverse and representative content. So taking a step back, what that really means for us is one of the things we spend a lot of time thinking about is what is that set of criteria that will make an ad, an ad successful on Facebook, on YouTube, on Snapchat, on Twitter? And then how do we help you essentially make sure that whatever messages, whatever creative you want to send out there, it's optimized so it's got the highest chance of being seen and heard? Right. And that means something a little bit different for every platform. But these things that we're, we're emphasizing right now are things that have been proven time and time again to enhance sales lift and brand lift across these platforms. And they're very different. So, you know, again, the, the goal here is not sort of micro optimization, micro ad tweaking. The goal is more to understand what is what are the creative fundamentals that make it more likely for your ad to get seen and to cut through. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And so once you understand what those fundamentals are, you can build an ad campaign that really uses that those set of fundamentals to consistently represent your brand and the imagery and the, the container, as you call it, so that it becomes recognizable to the brand. That's right. So, uh, so we, we take kind of a multifaceted journey. The first part of the journey is just to understand okay, we, we see that there are these fundamentals and some brands will have done their own research and they they would have learned, hey, here are some things that we see always work for us and some things that don't, right? A lot of brands are doing lots of A-B testing. They're, they're always learning, right? And so we'll take those learnings and we'll figure out, okay, you've got these learnings. How often are you actually applying them, right? Again, it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to apply it at scale. Sure. And this will give us a view of, of what we think of as their creative health score, right? Essentially the percentage of content that they're deploying that actually meets 
each platform specific best practices and recommendations for their industry, as well as their own learning and their own data about what makes an ad successful for them. In addition to that, we'll look at how efficient is their media spend. So how much money are you actually deploying behind content that meets all of these things? And that really helps you establish, you know, uh, what the goal should be, how well you're doing, how much gains are there to be made. And then from there, we we have a tool that helps you essentially avoid any wasted media spend before the creative actually goes out the door, right? So this is called pre-flight evaluation. It's exactly what it sounds like. You upload an ad before it goes live. We tell you thumbs up or thumbs down. Does it adhere to the to the fundamentals of what it means to be successful on those platforms? Does it adhere to the best practices that you've established? Does it adhere to your brand guidelines? Um, does it meet your regulatory standards, right? Some of the, of the brands we work with might also have um, other creative constraints, such as, you know, if you're an alcohol company, you probably don't want to show people driving in the same ad, right? So, so there's a lot of other things that go into consideration, all of it uh, around this idea of, of can we help you get that message across in a way that's more likely to be seen and in a way that will get recognition to your brand to happen as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Hey, it's Eric here, and we'll be right back to the podcast. But first, are you ready to grow, scale, and take your marketing to the next level? If so, the five echelon groups, virtual CMO consulting service may be a great fit for you. We can help build a strategic marketing plan for your business and manage its execution step-by-step. We'll focus on areas like how to attract more leads, how to create compelling messaging that resonates with your ideal customers, how to strategically package and position your products and services, how to increase lead conversion, improve your margins, and scale your business. To find out more about our consulting offerings and schedule a consultation, go to 5echelon.com and click on services. Now back to the podcast. Do you find that uh, a lot of companies that you work with, their brands just get a little stale, that they get very into a routine of a, of a certain uh, kind of brand persona that they put out in the marketplace and a lot of their creatives just tend to fall in line without ever really doing the research to see how effective that is? It's a multifaceted question. So I'll try and take it one by one. So, you know, to your point about... Um, how many best practices are backed by data? Uh, the reality is when we, when we tend to start working with a brand, very few, mm-hmm. right? So there, is, um, there has been this perception in the industry that uh, creative is the one area you don't challenge and you don't embed data into, right? Mm-hmm. It, and so sometimes what we tend to see is when we when we see a list of best practices or learnings come in from a company, um, they are recommendations from an individual rather than things that have gone through that full data and testing cycle, right? They're, they're not actually data back. They're, uh, they're things people feel they should be doing for their brand because of their past experience and learnings, et cetera. Our goal is not to challenge them necessarily. Our goal is to give that data to let them determine is this the right thing for your brand? Yes or no. And I think the way that you do that is you say, okay, let's say you have a best practice around putting people in your ads, right? Humanizing the ad is, is always good. Uh, well, what we might do is say, okay, let's, let's measure that. Um, so we'd, we'd run all their ads through our system. We would categorize them by those that had people and those that didn't. And we would give them that data and they could look at, you know, from a digital point of view, 
does having people the ad seem to correlate with higher click-through, higher conversion, et cetera? You could also, for some of the bigger brands for whom ultimately it's about sales lift and brand lift, metrics you can't really measure digitally, they can export our data out and actually combine it with their first or third-party data and look for those bigger um, bigger correlations to those macro macro metrics, right? So I think that's one problem. It's to your point, there's a lot of stuff that exists that hasn't been vetted. To the other point around, hey, once you have these best practices, do things get a little bit scale, uh, stale? The answer is uh, typically not, mostly because actually, again, if you take a, if you take a, a bigger brand, a lot a lot of teams have trouble marching to the beat of the same drum, right? You have you know dozens, if not hundreds, of marketers. You have uh, different markets, different products, et cetera. And all of them are doing their own thing a little bit. So what we tend to see is inconsistency is a bigger problem than, than consistency and staleness. That does bring sort of the, the third point, which I think is underlying your question, which uh, we, we tend to think about quite a lot. Let's say you follow all these best practices. What does that mean for creativity, right? What does that mean for creative expression? The last thing that we want to do is be prescriptive about the kinds of things that uh, that people in the creative space should be doing. And the way that we think about it is what we're simply doing or trying to do is, is give you some constraints in which your creativity is a higher chance to thrive, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of research that says, you know, uh, constraints are essentially the mother of invention, right? Then when people have uh, a few barriers around a blank page, they actually get much more creative in thinking about how to do things in a way within those constraints, right? And so um, our goal, and we, we try and make this very, very clear, and I think technology's goal overall is not to replace creativity. It's to give it, uh, it's to give it a container in which it has a higher chance of being seen and heard. Well, if, if I play that back a little bit, what I hear is that you're applying data and science to creativity to help companies make better decisions, not necessarily taking away the creative aspect of it. But as we've said many times on this podcast, you know, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, but they're not facts, right? They're, uh, they're just people's preferences. And when you can start to back some of that up with data, then you've got some more punch behind what you're actually trying to do. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think there is, there, this is changing, but for a very long time, the creative team and the data team sat in different parts of the building within a marketing organization, right? So you, you, had, your, you had your teams who were the, the big idea people, right? And the creative people. And then you had your, your quants in the other corner doing all the Excel work and your data crunching. And it was rare for these teams to talk to each other. That's changing now. And I think largely that's because the role of the CMO is changing, right? And there, And this, again, goes back to the difficulty of being a marketer today, because you almost have to be all these things now, right? You have to be, you have to have familiarity with data. You have to have familiarity with, uh, with quantitative methods, but you also need to be able to, to tap into your creative side and, and try and come up with the big ideas. What we're hoping for, and, and our goal is ultimately to think about how do you enhance creative expression through data, right? Not replace, not take over. Uh, how do you use that data then give it back to those people who are thinking about, you know, what the next big creative idea is and let them put that data on steroids Mm -hmm. and interpret it in different ways. So, you know, if you tend to see that, Hey, having people in my ads is really powerful. It's not about sticking a human in every ad, right? But maybe it's, maybe it means 
your brand needs to be humanized. What are other ways you can humanize your brand? Right. I don't think it's it's a computer says this now now do this do sure. this forever and always in every ad. Well, one of the things that I've noticed too about creativity, and I think this applies more to smaller businesses than larger businesses that have big ad budgets and can afford to do a lot of original creative work is we are being inundated with the same old stock photography over and over. You know, people say, well, we got to put a image of a, of a woman working at a desk and that same picture has been used literally tens of thousands of times. And I think almost the purpose of the creative gets lost because people just don't register with the the image at all. They've seen it too many times. And yeah. for if you're a larger company and can go hire somebody to do all original work, that's not really your problem. But do you see this as well? Sometimes, even though the imagery might be good, it's stale in some ways. It's dated in terms of its reference or it's been overused. Yeah. You know, there is fatigue, right? There's definitely visual fatigue. And that goes not only to the image itself, but to the trends. For example, one of the things uh, we saw ages ago was... um, imagery that was black and white tended to overperform on Instagram feeds. And the reason for that is not because black and white imagery is better, just because it's different. When everything else around you is in bright, bold colors and you see something black and white, it catches your attention. It's very different. If then everyone all of a sudden started running black and white imagery, the same trend would apply to, to the, the color one. So yes, there is, there is, I'm sure there is image fatigue. And again, we've all seen kind of the, the same stock imagery circulate for certain things. Um, on the flip side, though, you know, we've seen this trend of brands wanting to or relying on influencers for content, and that has allowed them to freshen up, uh, freshen up their photography, freshen up their content, do so in a way that's, you know, faster, more scalable, more diverse. The problem they have there, though, is when you start scaling something like that out, you start to also see some brand risks associated with that, right? Sure. How do you prevent brand erosion? How do you prevent inconsistency in the way your brand is portrayed? Things that um, I think smaller and medium-sized brands are starting to think about, but things that the large brands are very cognizant of because they have spent billions building their brand. Mm -hmm. A good example here is, you know, if you think about Coca-Cola, there's a tremendous amount of research that shows if we just show the shade of the Coca-Cola red, Without anything else, no product, no logo, people will instantly know that is Coca-Cola. So think about the cost of all of a sudden having, you know, a bunch of marketing images where that red is slightly off by a little bit. Now, I know it sounds silly, right? Because you're like, well, red is red. But actually, these things make a really big difference over time. And for marketers who are just starting on their branding journey... If you don't get consistency right from the beginning, it's much harder to get it right later. And that's all opportunity lost in terms of really building that cognitive shortcut between whatever you consider distinctive about your brand and your users. But for the larger brands, it's actually setting them back. And and again, means that they've wasted tons of budget towards creating these distinctive brand assets and these shortcuts between their marketing and their consumers. I can totally relate to that. Working for years at Oracle, they were very militant about their policing of their Oracle Red. We cringed in marketing when salespeople would go out and create a presentation deck and shrink and stretch yeah. logos to fit, uh, fit on slides. And you know, it was awful. Yeah, but, but for good reason. Just like you said, little changes can all of a sudden throw that off. 
a lot of big enterprise customers have the advantage. So many of these tools that are out there were built for them in mind. You know, they were built for large companies, big budgets to be able to afford them, but not everybody can do that. What do you say to companies that might not have not necessarily the budget, but the volume? Because a lot of times when you're doing testing of advertising, you know, unless you get a certain sample size, you really don't know whether your test is valid or not. And I think for a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, their budgets may be such that they really don't get great sample sizes to know what ads are effective. Hey, any any thoughts great. on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. You know, in some ways, I think when you don't have a lot of data, testing can... I don't want to say it can be worse at not testing, but it can lead you to draw erroneous conclusions because you mm -hmm. don't have, to your point, a large enough sample size. So what I would say to, to people who have lower content volumes, who are, uh, who are more budget constrained, is start with the basics, right? So let's talk about Facebook, for example. Facebook is probably one of the biggest platforms where a lot of small and medium-sized businesses are trying to cut through. What are the basics on Facebook that anyone can take advantage of? What are the best practices for, for that channel? Um, well, okay, so one is you have to brand early, right? The average view time of a Facebook video is zero to three seconds. I think a lot of marketers tend to assume, you know, I'll build up to my brand. I don't want them to lose attention. But actually that assumption tends to not play out when you look at meta studies around the effectiveness of Facebook advertising. So if you know that zero to three seconds is really the chance you've got, You've got to put your branding up front and early. Now, the way you do it, that doesn't mean slap a logo on it, right? It could mean uh, it could mean it's it's in the text overlay. It could mean you show your product. It could could mean many different things. But make sure you're branded up front. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's very important to a platform like Facebook is optimizing for sound off. So I believe uh, I, I'm not sure this is the latest app, but somewhere between eighty and ninety six percent of Facebook videos are watched without sound. It's an incredible statistic, really, yeah. Right. So so if any of your messaging is delivered through sound or anything that relates to understanding a piece of content is through the audio, you've just lost your audience. You know, they, they, your ad does not have the chance to be seen and heard. So the common best practice there is use supers or subtitles, right? So people can, can actually follow along with the audio if there is any. Or think about how do I tell the story without sound? How do I rely predominantly on visual to do this? Another, uh, another best practice that is super unsexy, but super important is making sure your asset is actually framed correctly. Mm -hmm. So this is again, where we see people take a Instagram video and put it on YouTube, or they take a mm -hmm. Facebook ad and they put it as an Instagram story, different platforms, different viewing behaviors, different recommended aspect ratios. You would be amazed at how many times we see a uh, uh, an ad on an Instagram story that's horizontal instead of vertical. You just need money to waste like 80% of your real estate, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. um, this is where it comes down to, it's not, there's a lot of studies that show these are the right things for you. And, and that doesn't mean it's right for everyone, but this is a pretty good place to start mm -hmm. while you get more data and while you figure out what are some of the other things that I should be doing. Um, another one along those lines is show the product and show the product in action. Right. And again, going back to that, um, to that upfront nature of, of Facebook consumption, the earlier you get it in, likely the better. So, uh, so that folks can actually see it if they drop off before, uh, before, you know, kind of a couple of seconds. This may be asking you to speculate a little bit, but when we're in an era of TikTok videos and so many content creators, 
And I think about ads, uh, you know, from the past that I remember, almost all of them are humorous. The ones that stick in your mind are the ones that for some reason they just work. They had a comedy element and you, they made you chuckle. Um, mm -hmm. But humor is really hard, right? Uh, humor, yeah. it's going to fail more times than it works. Yes. Any advice or things that you've seen from studies about when you're looking at how you frame an ad, do you tend to advise clients to stay away from that? No. So, I, you know, we, it's funny, one of the, uh, so when we start working with a brand, um, one of the, the big discussions we have up front with everyone is, hey, what are some of the things that we want to measure and track? And it is amazing how many times people say, we want to track if our ad is funny. Okay. Right? Interesting. Uh, and the reality is technology can't do that, at least sure. not in a way that we figured out yet. And uh, the way that we think about it is the best things to track are things that are binary. So if you and I had a very clear definition, like, does this ad have people in it? You and I could both look at the same ad and come up with the same answer, right? And that, that makes it easy for sort of machines to learn, hey, you know, people know people. When you look at something like humor, you and I could watch the same video and you could think it's the funniest thing in the world and I could find it incredibly insulting, mm -hmm. right? So, so humor is one of those things that is incredibly subjective um, yeah. and something that's really tricky to measure. There, you're right. There are studies that show that uh, having ads that are funny tends to be better because people let their guard down. Therefore, they're more receptive to the messaging. How you create funny ads and what is humorous is, you know, if I solve that problem, then I, I think I'd be retired. So. Probably so. Yeah, it is. It is interesting because. I, things don't always translate, whether it's in languages or cultures and humor is definitely one of those things that's especially tricky. So, uh, you know, I've had a number of clients who have come to me and said, you know, we want to do something funny and it's hard to even know where to start unless that yeah. that's really the face of your brand. I, I, I don't know. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think, you know, the way we, um, a lot of what our brands end up then wanting to measure once they realize, Hey, Technology is not at a place where you can, you can it can measure funny. Is just trying go trying to go back to what is distinctive about their brand, and how do we measure some of those things, right? And um, what is distinctive about their voice, their their visual identity, their character identity, their positioning, etc. How do we start to measure that in scale and and see what happens? But but humor is a challenge for sure. What do you think about ad frequency? I know that sometimes we are just bombarded with the same ad over and over again. And obviously that, that works to some extent. It puts a, a brand or a product in people's mind, but it also can really cause fatigue, not only in the, the length of time that you see it, you know, if you see the same ad multiple times within a day to, you know, if you've seen the same ad for the last two years, is, is there a lot of good data on that? Or again, do you see that being very dependent by the industry, by the brand, by the product? Yeah, I, I think uh, we we see that as being you know the data is all over the place is that is the long and short of it. Um, I think what you're seeing in terms of the changes that are being made to cookie tracking on browsers like Chrome mm -hmm. will mean that it will be harder for ads to follow you across different sites and for your behavior on one site to impact what you see on a, on a different site. So I think some of that will start to change, which is why, you know, I think especially direct response marketers, where if you put something in your basket and then left the site and then that, that item chases you around for the next mm -hmm. few years, 
you know, there is reason for concern there. I mean, the reality is it, it does work. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many marketers doing it. I think it tends to work more in certain categories and for certain campaign objectives like direct response, especially when you then layer a discount on it. To be honest with you, sometimes I do it as a tactic, right? Where sure. if I'm looking to buy something, I'll put something in my cart, I'll leave. And then a week later, I'll start to get discounts for that item. Yes. Um, so it's, it's been great if you can sort of pack it a little bit. Uh, it tends to come at the expense of branding because you're right. Um, you get annoyed and annoyance isn't good if you're trying to, it doesn't really matter if you're trying to get a, an item for as cheaply as possible. If you're looking to build brand, it's probably not the best idea, which is why a huge trend we see across companies doing brand building work is just a proliferation of content because they don't, they want to show you a similar message, but that looks visually different, mm. right? They want to be consistent with what they're trying to say, but We've seen uh, content production triple to quintuple over the last couple of years simply because of this ad fatigue problem that many brands are trying to avoid. That's really interesting. Uh, Yeah, and there's some amazing advertising going on, and these platforms give you so much flexibility. And you're right, this new cookie tracking and some of the privacy policies that are coming up in iOS and other places are going to change things. It's going to be interesting to see how advertisers work around that in some ways I think it's good. I'd rather be served ads that are relevant to me than things that are completely irrelevant. So it's going to be interesting to see what the impact of all this has. So as as we sort of come to the close of our interview here, I'm curious, you know, what do you see the future holding for CreativeX? What do you see the future holding for advertising in the next year, two, three years out? You see, are big changes afoot? Well, that's a a very difficult question. I know. (laughs) <laughs> I, I guess the, the creative X piece is, is easier to answer. So a lot of what we think about um, internally is what does it mean to build a better brand, right? And what does it mean to do so globally? And when we started creative X, we really thought about the creative fundamentals, right? Kind of getting the basics right and helping you scale the knowledge out. And as we've gone deeper and deeper, we've had some really interesting conversations around how our, our brands think about branding. And once they've nailed the fundamentals, what's next? Well, what's mm-hmm. next tends to be some of those brand consistency elements, right? And then a lot of what we're hearing now is uh, is really around diversity and inclusion representation. Mm. So how do you make sure that not only are you representing a diverse set of people, but when you do represent them, you're not relying on a set of old cliches and tropes in the way you you actually feature people and the stories you tell them about them. And so something, a lot of what we're thinking about is how do we help brands be more responsible as they're doing branding and represent people a little bit more authentically uh, than they do today. So, so that's kind of what's in store, what's in store for us. Um, in terms of what's in store for advertising, that is a great question. Uh, you know, I think, look, I, I don't know if I, I, I can tell you something that that the other brilliant folks you've had on, on your podcast haven't already told you, but what we see is there's no such thing as sort of a, a, a user on Facebook versus some, a user who sees your ad on TV. You have to assume everyone will see everything everywhere. So what that means for sort of audience segmentation and kind of how you deliver a consistent message is really difficult. Uh, I think this question of living in a largely cookie-less world becomes very interesting from the point of view of when you have a lot less data about the behavior of your consumers, what do you resort to and how will that drive impact? Um, And then, you know, I guess, 
I guess the other thing that I think about a lot, and I read this study recently, which showed that um, marketers largely don't understand their consumers, which I thought was fascinating. So there's a bunch of data that shows that um, when marketers were asked to to select kind of the kinds of things their consumers care about, they largely get it wrong mm, when you cross-reference that data with what consumers say. And so I guess there's, a, I think, a lot more of that data is getting published. So we're seeing a lot of the marketers we work with really reckoning with this idea of what do I know about my, what do I truly know, right? Mm-hmm. If I take myself out of the equation, what I feel and what I want and, and what, you know, what I think, what do my consumers actually want? And can I still be a good marketer if I am not like them? Right. And, and that's again, more of a macro point, but um, something we've been, we've been thinking a bit about and that I've heard a couple of marketers talk about. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, things are changing. Love the point, too, about diversity and inclusion. We've been having some conversations on this podcast about that. Yeah, you want to make your products welcoming to everybody, and sometimes you can get blinded by the fact that the imagery you use or the words that you use are really pushing a group away. And so uh, I think that there's a lot more focus on that, which is great for everyone. Yeah, one of the things we we were, um, one of the brands we work with very closely is Unilever, and one of the things they announced, I believe, just this week is that they're dropping the word normal from advertising, um, which we thought was, was a pretty, was a pretty great move. Um, cause maybe the word normal, when you talk about people, like what is normal, right? Um, so yeah, so we're seeing some brands make some, some, some strides in that space. Yeah. What's normal to you might not be normal to me. Oh, that's a very interesting mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Words do matter. And this is, yeah, this has been uh, been very fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that we had a chance to have this conversation today. I'd love it if you could just tell people where they could find more information about uh, CreativeX, about you on the internet, and anything else that you'd like to uh, share with the audience. Sure. Um, so you can find uh, you can find information about CreativeX at creativex.com. Uh, we also have a blog uh, where we publish a lot of this research that we hope will be applicable to brands big and small about everything from diversity in advertising to data proven best practices that can help your ads be more efficient and hopefully ultimately more effective. That's awesome. I will make sure that we have all of that stuff linked up in the show notes so that people can find it. And I really appreciate your time today coming on the podcast all the way from over in cloudy London. But uh, it's great to have these conversations and a really interesting perspective, one that we haven't really covered much on this show. So I really do appreciate you bringing your thoughts here today. Thanks, Eric. It was great to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Virtual CMO Podcast. For more episodes, go to fiveechelon.com slash podcast to subscribe through your podcast player of choice. And if you'd like to develop consistent lead flow and a highly effective marketing strategy, visit fiveechelon.com to learn more about our virtual CMO consulting services.